The Buzzer Podcast. All music. Worldwide music started in local music scenes. Underground, independent, unsigned talent. Music you choose to hear, not the music mainstream tells you to hear. Hosted by Shay, The Buzzer Podcast is a Canadian broadcast connected to artists around the globe. Hey, y'all. Shay here. This is the Buzzer Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Singer, songwriter, poet, painter, rule breaker, game changer. He pushed the boundaries, blurred the lines, held up a mirror, and reflected to us the state of our culture, our world, and ourselves. The irreplaceable trailblazer David Bowie helped define our universe through his music. Welcome to the sound and vision of David Bowie. Well, today's show, I chat one-on-one with George Mayer. George was a gatekeeper for emerging artists. Emerging artists at the time, such as Bon Jovi, Mellencamp, and Springsteen, to name a few. David Bowie was one artist. George and I talk about his time with David Bowie, the thoughts the artist shared with him, and the moments they shared. Enjoy the show. And before George joins the show, we're going to spin the track Gene Genie from the 1973 Aladdin Sane album. This pumping rock anthem, Gene Genie, was not an ode to a demon-clad deity. The track instead played homage to New York City's finest. And Bowie nodded his head to the sons and daughters of the Big Apple that inspired his soul. So now... Enjoy, Jean Genie.
That was awesome. And now we're going to meet up with George Mayer. And it was fitting. Jean Jeannie was from a nod to New York. And I connected with George through our network in New York City. So enjoy. <laughs> so it's really great to have you on, George. Um, um, if you can give us a snapshot of um, a bit about where you have a uh, come upon these stories that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, you had to start in uh, WIBG in Philly and was uh, instrumental in part of the uh, first underground radio station there, were you not? Yes, that's what happened. And it was just by, um, by luck that I happened to be there at the time uh, and uh, and be ready to to make a move. And and I was standing there, I was working at WIBG, but I was watching the FM station. The AM station was the big tiger in the market, uh, top 40 uh, juggernaut at the time. And uh, I was there uh, watching the FM. And uh, this fellow, Tom Donahue, who had been a disc jockey at Wibbage in the 50s, ended up in San Francisco and he ended up being the guy who invented what was called underground radio. So yeah, I was, I've heard of a name. Yeah. Tom Donahue. Yeah. He's a famous guy. And um, within the industry, at least, mm. and, and certainly famous in San Francisco. And so Donahue uh, was a, uh, he was quite a character. He was a that 400 pound behemoth with a beard and long hair. I mean, he was, 
perfect Tate Ashbury uh, kind of mm. guy, you know, and he, <laughs> and he was hanging out with the dead. And, the, and as a disc jockey, he was he was in the community. They were in in his studio all the time. So it was all part. He was all he was part of the whole genesis of of the, the media side of what was uh, that that new form of rock and roll album, rock and roll. As a, yeah. as a distinguished from top 40. So I was, and I was there. Uh, the key for me at getting out of Philadelphia or being broader than Philadelphia was that it became apparent that I knew the guys in BCN and I, I knew they were playing music, but I didn't know what they were doing. And I didn't know what KSN was doing. I didn't know what anybody was doing anywhere. The station in Memphis, I, I didn't know what was going on. And, and none of us knew because you can't hear the other guy in radio. But the way it worked was the record companies, of course, had representatives who were trying to influence us to play their music. Mm -hmm. So the only way I knew what was going on in BCN was because a record guy, a self-interested record guy, would tell me, hey, they're really playing it up in the Boston. You know, that kind of thing. So I decided that we ought to be talking to each other. So if you think about social media today, what I started was a paper U.S. mail version of social media. I started okay. a, public, a publication. <laughs> this is how I get to, to Bowie. Um, I started a, a publication called Walrus. And that was a trade publication. Nobody would know about it unless you were in the trade. Uh, and what I did was I recruited all these great stations that were popping up all over the country playing this music to report to me every other week uh, what they were playing, what they liked, what, what they were hearing, what, what was going on in town. Anything. That's cool. Yes. And so they, I would send them a form. They would fill out the form. I would send it by mail, U.S. mail. Uh, I, I would, and they would fill out the form, send the mail back to me, my wife and and uh, ultimate later employees would sit and type all that stuff onto on the paper. Everything they said, we typed. Uh, we gave them total freedom of speech. They could say what they wanted, and uh, sounds familiar, right? Like social media, say anything. Yeah. And uh, so we said, you can say anything you want uh, about record companies, about music. You don't like this. You don't like that. Uh, you know, whatever. And so we gathered it. I added, I figured out how to uh, figure out what the most airplayed records were for, for that period of time. And mm -hmm. so my publication came out 26 times a year. I gave it to the radio stations in return for the information and sold it to the record companies for a fair, uh, for a very high price at the time. And it was a very high expensive subscription, but they had to pay the whole boat, uh, the record company. Yeah. So that, so a walrus was the name of the publication. It existed for a good, more than a decade uh, and was, it became more and more successful as the seventies went on. Uh, so I, I, because of walrus, I was a national figure. Within the industry, nobody knew me beyond that, but I was a national figure. Wow. And, and therein, every record 
every artist who came to Philadelphia had to meet with me. They had to meet with the radio station and they had to meet with me because I was the only national voice. So I went, I saw everybody, everybody who came through town, everybody who came through on a promotional trip with a promotion guy taking them to radio stations would ask me and my my wife and I went out to dinner two or three times a week with artist after artist and and all those kind of people and so it was a lot of fun it was spectacular as particularly because I was in my late 20s so it was just perfect I mean, it was perfect. It was the music I loved, and it was people who were obviously interesting. And uh, so one day in one of those promotional tours, uh, they asked me to meet with this guy, David Bowie, uh, who uh, who had just put out his second album, Space Oddity, mm-hmm. and, and uh, Major Tom was there, and uh, there we go. So uh, I ended up meeting Bowie, and that night he came over to our apartment, which was live. The walls were covered with albums because all the record companies sent me every album. Oh, wow. And I listened to everything. That's the different, that was the only difference between me and, and a fan. I listen to everything. Fans listen to five artists and they know them in depth. They know every lyric. They know all the stories. I knew none of that because I didn't have time. <laughs> Even if I yeah. loved an album, I, I, I had to go on. I had 15 more albums to listen to at a deadline with a deadline. I had to publish my publication and write yeah. my commentary about these albums. But I did get uh, this entree to to uh, artist after artist, one of whom was Bowie. And he ended up in my apartment with my thousands of albums. And the two of us just played music for each other uh, all night. And uh, what did you play? Oh, I can't. I have no memory of uh. what, what we played. But because, I mean, it was one night. But I do remember us playing songs and he eventually started pulling re- songs out of my stacks and then would put them on. And then we'd play and play and play. And, wow. and sub, what do you like? And when I, and I like this, well, did you ever hear this guy? You know, and that, that, that kind of thing. And I was interested in all these blues guys that were coming here from England, like uh, John Mayall and, uh, and, and, and the Blues Breakers and, and bands like that that I never heard of. And I couldn't realize, at that time, we didn't realize that American blues, country blues from the South, had yeah. migrated, what was it was almost like they were uh, it was like it was contraband music in England. I mean, these guys they they brought them over on if they ever came to New York, they'd buy stuff and they'd take it back, and people coveted this music. And it was the the germ that led to the Rolling Stones. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah, it's yeah. exactly where the, the germ came from, the, these guys. But in the 50s, there were bands uh, of, of English guys 
who grew up listening to the blues. Mayall was one of the blues, well, the blues breakers were one of the early bands. And so I was talking to him about that, I know. And, and he was just listening to all this American music, which wasn't available or, or broadly in England at that time. So that, that was the thing. And that was the connection we had was he liked the fact that I knew about artists he never heard of. And of course, he was David Bowie. Even then, he didn't. He wasn't like others. He was a little bit of a star. He was a star. He was there was something special about him. Yeah, definitely. And it went on from there. And uh, so that was that was the be, that was the beginning of a, a what you might call a relationship. Uh, it was it was a distant run. I mean, we weren't buddy buddy, but you know, he would after albums he would call me. And, uh, you know, so one night I, um, I'm, I'm at home and, and the phone rings. And uh, he says, hi, it's David from England. So I said, hey, how are you? You know, I, I, of course, I recognize his voice immediately. And uh, so we're talking and, uh, and he, was, he was calling about, at that time, Hunky Dory had just come out. Okay. So, you know, it might have been, I, I, he, he wasn't calling me exclusively. Like I'm his buddy in America. I'm sure the record company put him up to making calls to key people around, you know, and I was just one of them. But but we did have a connection from from spending that evening at my house. And uh, so we start talking and we're talking about and he's asking me, you know, did you listen to it? Sure. Uh, Do you like it? Yeah. And, And then we talked about tracks and stuff like that. And the funny thing in that conversation, and this will send your woke audience into uh, apoplexy, but uh, know that it was 50 years ago, for crying out loud. Uh, I like, as an interviewer, uh, when I did interviews, uh, I would like to ask questions that nobody would want to ask because they might be dangerous. You know, and I just to get a rise out of particularly out of stars, it's fun to do. Uh, but in a nice, I mean, I'm not, it's not malevolent yeah. in any way, it's just for the fun of it. Yeah, I get that. If you know the cover of the Honky Dory album, he is uh, posed very in a, a, a sort of, uh, he might, might as well have been in drag. I mean, yeah, he just looked like a woman. So I said, uh, hey, David, uh, you know, some friends of mine are asking, are you a man or a woman? Which, of course, you couldn't ask today. But, but, but it, was fun. it was for the fun of it. And his response was incredible. Without missing a beat, he came back and he said, just tell them I'm English. <laughs> Which was, no way. Yeah, that's the reason I remember the story. Is because his response was just tell him I'm English, and we roared about that the response and the whole idea, you know. Yeah, that was that that was another that was a great moment with him. Well, he was well known for his quick clips. Oh yeah, he was he was he was fast. He was he was very good, and that that was a great one. I mean, he didn't miss a beat. It wasn't like he thought. It was bang, right back. Just tell him anyway. That was great. Uh, then uh, another 
Uh, and then later, this that, so that was, I don't know, early 70s by that time. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, then he did the Spiders from, that was a good one, the Spiders from Mars tour came through okay. Philadelphia. And uh, the funny thing for me, driving up to the, it was, he had not yet gotten into the hockey arenas and stuff like that. This was still the proscenium arch. It was a theater uh, that was in Philadelphia called the Tower Theater. And the, and the okay. audience, his audience was, uh, the ticket holders were all lined up down the street as I drove up. At that time? What's that? At that time already. Oh yo, he was he was wow. he was Bowie, and then yeah, and, I know, but he he didn't have a a number one American single until nineteen seventy five. Well, not a number one, but uh, uh, Major Tom w- was played constantly, and at his, oh, okay, in terms of radio play, right? And then Spiders from Mars album was a hit, and and uh-huh. and uh, and his look. And the the shaved the red hair and then the red hair and the crew cut you know the mullet that he had uh, for the, the during a period of time and that was the funny thing the funny thing was you drove up and in the line you know populated through the line were people that had his haircut no way had red hair. Oh, yeah. Red hair, crew cut on the top, but a bright red, long in the back, but crew cut on the top. And and they had his haircut. And the funny part was that when you got in and you saw him on stage, he wasn't wearing that anymore. They were like two steps behind him. If he if he was wearing that in December, in June, when you saw him, he didn't have his hair like that. No, he was always he was, ahead he of was, the game. He was, just, he was moving on. He was always moving on. And his audience sort of was sort of following behind. And that was like the perfect example of the audience being two steps behind him. I mean, he was he was just amazing in that way. So I uh, I so I was asked to come backstage after the show by his people because I was the guy in Philadelphia that he had a connection with. So um, so uh, my wife and I went backstage and we enter his backstage area and he's in his jockstrap. And, uh, and, 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 and there are two, two giant uh, uh, clothing racks. Okay. One covering one wall, one covering the other wall. And there's a woman there who's his dresser. And now I, I that's I'll just finish that story. I won't go backward. But so she's his dresser, and she is throwing clothes on him to set him up for the coming evening, the post-concert evening. Okay. Which my wife and I were supposed to be involved with. So that she's throwing clothes on. No, I don't like this. Put this. Let's try this. And and the last thing she throws on him is a giant red boa. So here's Bowie. I mean, he's just Bowie. <laughs> you know, nobody was like him with with it with his boa and and his outfit. And he just was spectacular, spectacular, and fun. And so we all we went. At my wife and I and and he and and maybe somebody else. And, oh, they probably the record guy, and we went bar hopping that night, 
Um, but he, you know, he, we can imagine this vision walking into just a bar and uh, Bowie walks in. I mean, it was, it was fantastic. So just being, uh, and, and that was the joy for me always was not being, I, I was never interested in being a star myself, but I loved being around those people because they were, um, they were special. There was something more about them uh, than other people. There was something going on there. And he was one of those that had a little bit of magic around them. So that was, that was, that was fun. I think there was, uh, there was another kind That's an incredible story. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, they were, they were great. Now I wasn't alone. I mean, every, he went into different towns I, I know he was a big deal in Memphis, and Memphis radio blew him up. So he must have had great friends. Uh, there was a guy named John Scott who's, who's still around, uh, who was uh, he lives in LA now, but he was he was a Memphis DJ DJ, and he was he 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 literally put Bowie on the map in that town. And so I'm sure that uh, he was friends with John Scott. You know, I mean, these guys were all dotted all over the country, and I'm sure every place he went, he went. The um, the promotion guy from the record company would take him, uh, take him by, and so that's who. Mm -hmm. So he had friends all over the place. I was not alone, but that was my experience, and um, you know. And there were a couple other times. I remember another time he played the Spectrum. So he had moved from the proscenium arch to the Spectrum in Philadelphia, where the Sixers played and the, and the, yeah. and the Flyers and so forth. And uh, I went backstage there. I have no memory of that, except that everybody, he didn't let anybody else through. Uh, he told that I was the only one, my wife and I were the only ones he, he let through. And we had another one of those music business, music uh, artist conversations. Who do you like? Who are you listening to? That kind of thing. So uh, then you saw a picture of me with Bo, yeah, having dinner. Yeah, I think it was dated 1976. It was dated 1976. And that took place in a restaurant uh, that was a swanky place in uh on on fifth avenue in new york I yeah, you look all dressed up <laughs> yeah, yeah i put it i put my only tie on uh, and he came in again no boas none of that but that blonde pompadour and he was wearing a, a sport jacket that had these giant wide shoulders and was sort of tight buttoned at the, at the waist and he looked like a 19, he looked like a 1947 movie star, not okay. a 1976 movie star, but a 1947. I mean, he just looked like a star. I mean, he just yeah. blew that place apart. It was a fancy place, but Bowie had never walked in there before. Yeah. And this, the reason for the dinner was that I think Station to Station came out. And it was different than everything else he had ever done. Yeah, it was. The record company expressly said, uh, we're pulling everybody together because we want to make sure that you're going to listen to this record and take it seriously because it's different. So they were concerned. So what they did was they brought the guys from BCN in, in Boston 
down, the guys from NEW in, in New WNEW in New York, and me from Philadelphia, and the and the radio said WMMR from Philadelphia, uh, the radio station that actually became the big player in Philadelphia uh, in underground radio, and so mm-hmm. they all they all came up to um, up to New York to this restaurant for dinner. And uh, but David and I sat together because we had the history and we had stuff to talk about, you know. Yeah. So that's how we got in that conversation that you saw in that picture. And um, and the two things that I remember from that conversation, one was that he was talking about he was talking about young Americans. And and the and that it it was basically an R and B record, a Philly sound record, and mm. that it was because he his point was he absorbs music, he he hears stuff, and that's why he always asked me about what I was listening to, because he wanted to maybe there was a clue, something else he could absorb, he could take in, he could be influenced by, and uh, so he. Uh, so he was making the point that he had made young Americans um, by uh, because, uh, you know, he was just absorbing stuff and he just happened to love this R&B stuff and he wanted to try it. So that was the that was part of the conversation. And the other part was more interesting to me, actually, because I, I had just seen Man Who Fell to Earth. And okay. so I asked him about you know, about how he got the part and why he took that role and what what was what was that about? That's movies, you know, and that, those days record guys didn't do movies. I mean, mm-hmm. the Beatles, Beatles had, but that was the Beatles, you know. But, yeah. So, uh, so I just asked him about it and he said, well, his real reason for doing the movie was not be, to become an actor, although, you know, that didn't bother him. That was a good idea. But he really wanted to get his director's chops. And, you know, at the time, that didn't mean anything to me, except, oh, it's cool. You want to be a director, you know. Uh, and I left that alone. It became apparent what he was talking about when I saw fashion, the video for fashion, because yeah. that was in 1980, three, four years later. And it was a great video. At the time, it was monumental. It was really, it was really just art. And it was Bowie. It was Bowie directing. And it was Bowie's vision about what video ought to be. And it was the very early days of videos and MTV and everything. And here he did a, a sort of a masterpiece for its time. Yeah, it definitely was. And, and, uh, and, so getting his director's chops, four years earlier, he saw video as, as a thing that he needed to master. And, and uh, I, uh, in my naivete, said, oh, that's cute, you know, but he wants to be a director. I thought films. No, he knew what he wanted to do. I mean, he was the, that, was, that was really cool about him. So, you know, that, that's... Uh, Basically, the 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 things that happened between us over those years. After that, um, I sort of I, I I 
Well, what happened was my publication was gigantic in the mid 70s at around this time, 76 ish. And I was very successful. And but in 1979, the business changed dramatically. And, um, and and I and I lost about a third of my subscribers because the record industry uh, congealed and and big guys bought little guys. So all those little guys had five subscriptions. Well, they went away. So I lost. So by the by the consolidation of the record business, my subscription business uh, went away and there was no no profit in it i could still publish but it would be for free i wouldn't eat <laughs> you know so yeah so i ended sense. up so you know i mean it, it, it teaches you a life, life lesson i couldn't adjust to the fact that the business adjusted and uh so that was my failure as a business person but i was a music guy you know what did i know mm-hmm. and yeah, so I sold the publication and very soon after got offered a job um, uh, at Polygram in New York uh, doing promotion. So now I was the guy from the record company who was supposed to influence the guys at radio. And uh, Okay, and that's it, amazing. And so that was the flip. Instead of being the guy who the record companies came to to take out to dinner to try and influence me, I was yeah. now, now the guy who had to go out and influence the record, the radio guys. And the reason I was hired is because I knew all the radio guys, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. And uh, and even better, I knew I knew the guys who were the consultants, and and so I ultimately became I I ended up running that rock and roll department until about 85, 86. And, and we introduced artists. And uh, so Bon Jovi was on my watch and, and Def Leppard was mine and Scorpions and, uh, and, and bands like that who, um, Oh, uh, and, uh, Another guy I had great relationship with later, as a result of this, was um, um, John Mellencamp. Because Mellencamp was on our uh, and uh, and so forth. So all these guys, I became friends with those musicians. But I was going to radio stations. I was going to the consultants to the radio stations to influence mm-hmm. them to be playing these new artists. And um, and we were very successful. We we had we happened to have artists that radio at that time happened to want to play. So I was walking in, even though we were the third biggest record company, fifth biggest record company in terms of dollars earned. I mean, Columbia, you know. But yeah. four, four times our size and, and Epic and, and Atlantic and, and Warner Brothers. They were giants. We were fifth. Uh, Polygram was. And um, and but we were number one in airplay, not because I was brilliant or my team of local reps were brilliant. It was because we had the records radio wanted to play and they were Mellon Camp. And Death Leopard and Scorpions and and uh, and Bon Jovi, 
And what about, uh, I've seen pictures of you with Springsteen as well. Well, that was uh, in the early, that was going back to the time in the 70s when I was, um, when I was uh, doing Walrus and I was a national figure. Okay. When Bruce would come through, I'd get an invite to come backstage. And that picture you probably saw had another, a third person in it. He was a local reporter um, from uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer. And this was backstage. This was the first time, this was the first time Bruce had played uh, in in the hockey arena, uh, in a stadium, uh, in the spectrum. And that was that day. It was maybe 73. 73, 74, something like that. And um, I think it was 73. And uh, so I had seen Bruce, uh, believe it or not. See, we went out two or three nights a week, my wife and I, uh, to to basically to uh, coffee, local coffee houses, because that's where the very new artists would come in and play. And uh, the coffee houses. Yeah, the first place they landed was the little coffee house with two hundred oh, cool. with two hundred seats. So I saw uh, uh, who did I see? Billy Joel in a two hundred seat coffee house, just him playing the piano. And and he was so it was so early uh, in in the uh, in in his time that people couldn't tell the difference between him. And Elton John and Leon Russell. They were all singers who played the piano. And it's okay. all mushed together in our little early minds. And 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 Joel got up there. He was fantastic. He got, he got up. He's a great entertainer. He got up and he starts banging on the on the piano. He's doing his songs. In the middle, he stops to talk to the audience. It's an intimate crowd. We're all right on him, you know. I mean, he's on a little stage, a little platform. And uh, so he says, you know, people can't tell the difference between me and 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 Elton and and uh, Leon Russell. He said that that's ridiculous. He said, this is the way I play. And he starts playing and it's total Billy Joel. And he says, and this is the way Elton plays. And he starts playing Elton and it's completely different. And it's obviously different, but in our naive ears, we couldn't, it was hard for people, especially the audience and us, us sophisticated radio guys, we, we, we could tell the difference, but the audience in general was having a tough time distinguishing between these people. And then he played Leon Russell and he did the way Leon Russell plays the sort of gospel piano sound. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he was, and that, that was great. So we saw all these guys. I saw Springsteen in the same 200 seat place with the entire East street band to say they blew the back wall of the place out is an understatement. I mean, it was, Believable to see him then. We loved him from the albums, but seeing him, imagine him live on a stage uh, with 200 people. That's it. Uh, that would be beautiful. The, actually, Springsteen is the best concert I've uh, ever been to, hands down. Absolutely. He's incredible. Yeah. He's absolutely incredible. There's nothing like him. He's he's uh, he's magic. And unless you've seen him live, you really don't. It's hard to appreciate. Although oh, there, yeah. there are some videos where if you sit, I've watched many of them 
full, I've watched whole concerts uh, that are on YouTube and so forth uh, of him. And uh, they're, they're joyful and uh, they're joyful. And there are things about them that I love. Um, and when he introduces the band and, uh, and uh, freeze out and, uh, and stuff, it's just fabulous. Um, yeah. So I, I uh, but anyhow, so I saw him then. Then I saw him when he played in in a, a theater, and then I saw him, and, and then that then I had that occasion uh, on the back of um, uh, at the back of the Spectrum uh, after after that show, and uh, when I was in that picture. Now it's interesting that they the the Inquirer later like couple several years later now it had to be in the 80s because i was already in new york and they decided to that he was coming to town and they made a poster that fit in the newspaper it was folded in half in the newspaper but it was a heavy weight paper poster of that picture that you you're looking at in full color with the three wow. of us, with the three of us, and we were listed at the bottom. And the reason I know it was the eighties is because my mother called me to tell me that her friends were calling her to tell her that Georgie is uh, in, in the paper, you know, because <laughs> they saw Georgie in the paper. So uh, that, that 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 that's how I know it was in the eighties. I was already out of town. Um, and uh, so I didn't know about it, but I got a couple copies of it. And uh, so that is a uh, that picture comes from that poster. Uh, but if you notice in that poster, they could very easily have cut me out and just chopped me and just had the, the writer and the, their writer and the thing and then and, and, and the thing and, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah. Bruce. But uh, they didn't. And the reason is only because I knew the writer. And we were friends. And he said, no, nah, leave him in there. <laughs> so they <laughs> chopped the picture such that I stayed in. But there was no need for me to be there. But I stayed, uh, I stayed in only because of friendship. And, uh, yeah, that's so, amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you for thank you for sharing all these amazing stories. You've had quite a career. Yeah, well, it ended thir- almost 40 years ago. So uh, I was in my mid-40s. And I was going to those radio stations, and every time I walked in a radio station, the kid on the other side of the desk who had my fate in his hands was 25 years old. And every time I went back, it was another kid. He was 25 years old because the first kid blew himself up with his power and his young ego and his cocaine or whatever. And so they were always 25. And I couldn't imagine being 60 and still walking into radio stations, and the kid was always going to be 25. And so I made a transition, became a marketer because I learned marketing while yeah. I was that while I was marketing uh, musicians. And um, and the, and the, by the way, the key lesson for anybody who cares about marketing is the following: it's 90% the product you're selling, not you, not your brilliant idea. The message has to be right. Everything has to be right. But you're 10% of it. Because I was a great promotion man at Polygram because I had music that radio already wanted to play. 
So yeah, walking, walking Bon Jovi into a radio station was not a hardship on me. It wasn't my brilliance that got it on the radio. It was because they had to play him and they wanted to play him. They loved him at, at the time. Radio loved them. So if you have a great artist, a brilliant artist, and you walk into a radio station and they're not interested in playing that kind of music, uh, you can whistle until uh, the breath comes out of you and you'll never get it on that radio station. So it's not a matter of influence and pushing and all that. Do you have a, did you pick the right product in the first place and generalize that go beyond the record business? And you can say that about any product there is the thing mm -hmm. about Apple computers uh, when it made its renaissance and the thing about the, the, the uh, iPods and iPads and all that, all that stuff is people wanted it. So the sales looked incredible because they yeah. hit, Hit the sweet spot and you hit the sweet spot and you're going to win as a marketer. So as a marketer, your biggest problem is choosing the thing you want to market. Because if you choose that right and people want it, then your marketing is going to be successful. Yeah. And applying that, that's excellent advice. Applying it again to the music business. If you, if, if you're really good, if you're really good, it, it, it doesn't matter because you got the right product. Yes. Right. I mean, and then Billy Eilish comes out of nowhere. Yeah, I, I know. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I love her. And then uh, of the new artists, they're very, they're very few. I spent uh, 30 years. One more thing about Bowie. We'll stop with that. OK. Do you know that Elon Musk back in April bought the entire Bowie catalog? So the guy who owns Bowie's music is Elon Musk. How do you like that? Wow. I hadn't read that. Uh, that great. So uh, that's who owns Bowie's music. And it sort of stands to reason, given the fact that he's in the space exploration business. There might be a connection there. Could very well be. I would think so. But he's he's a visionary in his own right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Um, I'm surprised I missed that. Uh, unless it was bought by a conglomerate or a corporation he owns and I didn't catch the connection. But Yeah, that's yeah, possible. That's, that's interesting stuff. Thank you for bringing that up. Yep. Yeah, so that's the, that's, the, that's my life with uh, with David Bowie. And that's and, awesome. Yep. Well, thank you so much for spending time on the podcast. Um, as my fans pleasure. are going to love to hear these stories. They're very interesting. And thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Well, y'all, we're going to end the show with a great track. The Man Who Sold the World, released November of 1970 under Mercury Records. The song is about a man who no longer recognizes himself and feels awful about it. For years, Bowie struggled with his identity and expressed himself through his songs, often creating characters to perform them. On this album cover, Bowie is wearing a dress. Let's look at the lyrics of a song. David Bowie says, Oh, no, not me. I never lost control. This shows that Bowie never really lost sight of who he was, but he sold the world 
or made them believe that he had become Ziggy, and he thought it was funny. As in the lyrics is said, I laughed and shook his hand. He states, for years and years I roamed, which could refer to his touring, and gaze a gazely stare at all the millions here. Could be the fans at his concert. It could have been you. So listeners, we're going to end the show with Man Who Sold the World. Thank you very much for listening in and tuning in to the life, vision, and music of David Bowie. Thank you to Kevin, Connolly, Sasha Tukach, and Jack Spann and George Mayer for spending their time, energy, and incredible stories on the podcast. The value that you've given to fans by sharing your stories and your experiences is unmatched. Thank you again. I'm signing off now. On Air Indy, from my pad to yours over the airways. Cheers, y'all. Upon the stair, we spoke of was and when. Oh, I was no bear. They said I was his friend, which came as some surprise. I spoke into his eyes. I thought you died alone, alone, long time ago. I made my way back home I searched through for the world For years and years I wrote I gazed a gaze to stare And all the millions here We must have died alone
Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning into the Buzzer Network, sponsored by Buzzroll Media. Thank you to the artists who share their music. Our shows wouldn't happen without their music. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter for showtimes and updates. Subscribe at thebuzzerpod.com. Fans and artists can submit their request to Shay at thebuzzroll.com. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.